Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. There we go. Hey, what's up? Yeah, you can see my face now. Guys, I got to be completely honest with you, just in a spirit of honesty. The temptation to call in sick today and make Reed pull another sermon out of thin air for the third week in a row was so palpable. Oh my gosh. I was thinking about it all week. But I chickened out, so maybe next, yeah, next year I will ruin Reed's life, I promise. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to CCF Wednesday Night Edition. Some of you know me, and for that, I am sorry. Others of you don't know me, and that's probably for the best. I am Noah Jensen, a proud college dropout. That's right. There's too much cheering for that. But um, my favorite activities include pretending to be a a staff member of CCF, long walks on the beach, and distracting any and all Truman students from the schoolwork that they should be doing. That is pretty much me in a nutshell. If you're curious as to how I turned out this way, then you can blame all of these people. Yeah, Yeah, there they are. That's my family. There I am rocking a very strange haircut. Um, Yeah, that's something. But we were were all doing our our blue steel kind of model face here. Um, So we'll start from left to right. That is my perfect older brother, Jordan. Everything he touches flourishes. The handsome devil next to him is my stepfather, Walter David Disney. That is his real God-given name. If you're curious about it, come to sermon discussion. Um, Right underneath that, that is my mother, Lori. What a woman. Aces. Um, To the right of her is my incredible sister, Ellie, who's also sitting right here in the crowd, you may know. Yeah, she's, oh my gosh, she's so cool. Also, she she gives everybody haircuts in in Kirksville, so that's like, she's like the local barber in town. Um, that's me. That's too much to say about that. And then right below that, there is my little brother, Ethan, who, as you can tell, is an absolute goon. Um, but that's not all my family. Um, I have a lot, I have a couple more, one more picture. There it is. This is the other side of the family right here. Um, right there at the top of the pyramid. That is my biological father, bio daddy, uh, Daniel Jensen. That's him. Um, married to, with my stepmom, Kenyatta. Um, to the right, to his, your left, his right, his mother, my grandma Leslie, who has spoiled us rotten since we were kids. She's absolutely great. Um, there's Jordan, there's me. And then right there in the middle, that is Elijah with his twin brother, Isaiah. And then there's a very young and adorable looking Ellie. <laughs> and then um, right here on the left, that is Danielle. And then right there in the middle, the queen of it all, Amadis. Um, so yeah, that is my family. Um, but yeah, somewhere, also I have a wife. Um, I have a wife, she's here in the crowd. Give us a wave, Loaf. There she is. That's her. Um, but yeah, so somewhere from that beautiful mess of people, I emerged and I am here before you this evening. You lucky duckies. If you've been here on previous Wednesday nights, then you know that we as a church body have been journeying through the words of Jesus in his ever so famous Sermon on the Mount. Tonight we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, with Jesus having just taught his disciples about anger and the importance of reconciling yourself with your fellow brothers and sisters. 
And he segues ever so beautifully, as I am going to do now, into a section on lust and divorce. No? Nobody's excited? Really? Honestly, me neither. The original plan for this semester was for me to give a sermon on the you are the salt of the earth slash you are the light of the world section of scripture. Something that was inherently exciting for an encourager like myself. So when Derek proposed that I instead switch weeks with him to preach on lust and divorce with a pit in my stomach and a smile on my face, I said yes, like the spineless people pleaser I am. <laughs> to make matters worse, to anyone who asked me about this sermon, I've told them I was excited to be preaching on the subject. Spoiler, he was not excited to be preaching on the subject. I told him I was glad my weeks had gotten switched. Spoilers, he was not glad. He was the opposite of glad. So to everyone who asked me about the sermon this week, I am very sorry for lying to your face. Please forgive me, pretty please. With that out of the way, let's rip off this Band-Aid and see what Jesus has to teach us. This is lust and divorce, or man, I really wish I knew how to swim, or hope for the hopeless as if, or Jesus, man or machine, or plants, trees, bushes, and vines, or breakfast with the chief of all sinners, or the prodigal father. So let's jump in to our verse this day. This is Matthew 5, chapter, verses 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Oh, there it is. Pretty simple stuff. Uh, I think we'll call it there. Worship team, you guys can come on up and we'll call that a night. Thank you, Jesus. We'll see you guys next week. Awesome. If only. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get out of this that easily. Can you understand a little better now why I was less than thrilled to be preaching on this passage? Devout optimist that I am, I find it is well within my nature to gravitate to the chapters and verses of scripture that encourage and bolster and fill me with hope. The verses that we find ourselves in today, however, can often have quite the opposite effect. Rather than being filled with hope, I am left feeling hopeless. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Sounds simple enough. You shall not have sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse or someone who is the spouse of another. As straightforward as this command seems, I still chafe under its weight. The command to not engage in sexual activity outside the confines of marriage is something that we like to believe we have a handle on. However, taking one honest look at our own lives and the over-sexualization of our own culture proves that its roots still probe into many facets of our life. 
I think it important, however, to not guilt you too much for the over-sexualization of the world around you. For while it is true that social media and the internet have given us more access and therefore more avenues to temptation and sin than our predecessors ever had, it is naive to think that sexual immorality is a purely modern invention. Jesus is speaking to a culture and a time that is indeed far different from our own, yet I can't help but feel it remains as relevant a message to us today as it was for them. The disciples and the crowds that attended Jesus' sermons were raised, learning, and memorizing the very laws and commands that he brings up in these chapters. You have heard it said you shall not murder, or you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. These are commands that from the outset seem obvious, easy to overcome, and yet the world has never seemed to conquer either of these simple instructions. These are commands that the people of Jesus' time knew by heart, and yet they struggled and fought to obey. Murder and adultery were far from unheard of. Many kingdoms and tribes reveled in the slaughter of their enemies and regularly engaged in all forms of debauchery. These commands were meant to set God's people apart, and it was far more demanding a call than we ever give God's people credit for. Just imagine that you're in their shoes. You've lived by these commandments to the best of your ability. You've been shunned and mistreated and dominated by empires that do not hold to these commands. But it's worth it, right? Because you've sacrificed these things for righteousness' sake. And how does Jesus, the Messiah, the bringer of hope, reward this sacrifice? He says this. And you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I tell you that anyone who is even angry with his brother has already committed murder in his heart. And you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How righteous do you feel now? It kind of takes the wind out of your sails, doesn't it? We, like the disciples, might be met with that sinking feeling that if what Jesus says is true, we may never truly measure up to what we already felt was rather high standards. The feeling that I'm tempted to feel is that of a swimmer treading water, trying their best to keep their head above the surface, reaching out for a buoy or a life preserver, but instead are handed a 50-pound dumbbell. If you've ever done lifeguard certification, you know this feeling pretty well. But if you're not lifeguard certified, it's not a stretch of the imagination to know that the last thing you want when you're trying to keep your head above water is more weight. This is how I feel when I read this passage. And I suspect that many, for the many in the crowds at Jesus' sermon, or even for some of you here tonight, you might feel something similar. Perhaps some of them merely checked out at this point, and they stopped paying attention, they just let their minds wander. We've all done that in a sermon or two. Perhaps some were offended and simply just got up and left. Perhaps there were shouting and flurries of questions, audible gasps, crude jokes, confusion, and murmurs. As nice as it is to believe that Jesus' words were simp that simply sat well with everyone in the audience, I simply cannot fathom that that crowd of actual human beings stomached it so easily. Especially when Jesus follows up his already controversial statements with this banger. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Do you hear the gasps, the grumpy murmurs, the questions, the sinking despair throughout the crowd? If what Jesus says is true and is to be taken literally, then who among us would even resemble a fully formed human anymore? Whose hand has not caused them to sin? Touch something that was not supposed to be touched. Taken something that was not supposed to be taken. Or whose eyes have not caused them to sin. Seeing something that cannot be unseen. Whose feet have not caused them to sin. Surely our feet have taken us places where we should not have gone. No one is righteous, it would seem. All fall short of the glory of God. No man is good, no, not one. It is utterly hopeless. So why does Christ do this? Why does, he, why does he pull the rug out from under us? For righteousness' sake, does he truly call us to be these misshapen creatures, these shambling, limbless, eyeless beings? If this sounds morbid, it's because it is. The costly demands of following God and his law have just become far more costly. The weight grows heavier. My head dips beneath the water. I cannot breathe. I need to scream, but I have no mouth. How can a young man keep his way pure, the psalmist cries. How indeed. I did not want to preach this passage. But it has been in writing this sermon that I have realized an essential pattern. I, like the Pharisees and the people in the crowd and some of the disciples, can see so much and know so much and believe so much and still miss the point entirely. My gut reactions, while valid and understandable, are almost certainly incorrect, misguided, irrational, hasty, and shallow. Maybe some of you here aren't so different. Consider these things. Is God so pragmatic, so legalistic, so robotic in his nature that his word and his law can only have a literal interpretation? Like a giant computer factoring code, does his law take nothing into context? Is he restricted only to the interpretation that humanity's struggles with lust and divorce are unforgivable taboos, whose transgressors must be dealt with, with extreme prejudice? I believe that many of us think that way about them. I know I have. For ourselves and our own judgment, lust and divorce are just types of sin that we feel there is no coming back from, or at least that there is very little grace for. Somewhere along the line, we convinced ourselves that these things and the ways we encounter them are unforgivable. What does this mean for the wife of an abusive husband who wonders if God will accept her for desiring a divorce for the safety of herself and her children? What does this mean for the young man or woman who feels burdened with the weight of a romantic heart that awakens sexual thoughts and desires that they do not feel they have full control over? What does it mean for me and you? Or, in those, or for our friends and family 
We have all felt the sting of lust and divorce, whether it's in our own lives or in the people around us. If we see God as a computer who merely executes the law, then it is no wonder that we struggle to forgive ourselves and one another. To be like God would mean to be robotic, slaves, no will of our own, never wavering, just following our programming. Gouge out the eyes, remove the limbs. They've only caused us problems anyway. Is this God's love? Is this what Christ calls us to be? If so, it, it's as if Jesus is suddenly siding with the Pharisees who were so concerned about the laws and its details and never breaking a single rule that they removed themselves almost entirely from the general population. Or rather, is Jesus wise as he is, crafty as he is, subtly poking holes in our assumptions once again? Rather than literally commanding, your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Your right hand causes you to sin, lop it off. Perhaps Jesus more so inquires. Your right eye causes you to sin. Try removing it. Did that fix your problem? Do you now sin no more? Your right hand causes you to sin. Get rid of it. Have you now eliminated the root of your sin? Go ahead. Add more rules. Create more agendas. Keep guilt-tripping yourself. Never indulge. Cut off all the things that could ever lead you astray. Are you now suddenly as righteous as you've always wanted to be? Perhaps Jesus knows that the struggles of lust and divorce are not problems of the hand or the eyes or the feet. They are simply symptoms of a problem of the heart. Don't believe me? Consider this. Jesus also says this in the Sermon on the Mount, the very same sermon we find ourselves in now, Matthew 7, 17 through 19. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If your hand causes you to sin and you cast it away, have you removed the cause of your sin? If you remove the rotten fruit from a diseased tree, have you cured it? Come next season, will rotten fruit not still grow in its place? The fruit and the branches are not the cause. They are the symptoms. The cause is the root of the plant. It must be burned away. But, but Jesus, wait a second, wait a second. I hear you say, this creates a similar problem. The tree is bad and the root is poisoned, so it must be cast into the fire. Is this the fate that awaits us? It seems Jesus has yet to let us off the hook. And that hopeless feeling that we started in is starting to creep back in. There seems to be no way out. But before we do, as we often do, and jump to too many conclusions... Consider this. While it is true, a bad tree can only produce rotten fruit, did you know that it's possible 
for a rotten fruit to contain a good seed. Not only that, it is also possible and true that seeds from rotten fruits can and do grow into new, good, healthy trees. How do we know this? Well, this is how plants grow in nature all the time. This is how they continue to exist with no help from humans. Plants and trees and bushes and vines that produce bad fruit can still create good seeds that grow into good plants and trees and bushes and vines. So it is true that the bad tree must be burned away down to its root. But the rotten fruit that fell from its branches may contain a seed that can be grown into something new, born again from something that was once sick and poisoned beyond all repair. So for us today in Violet Hall 1000, what is the seed? If we're the sick plant in need of some uprooting and our sin is the poison that needs to be burned away, then what is the seed? You have heard it called the Holy Spirit. You know it as Christ's redemption, God's love, Emmanuel, God with us. The seed is that one true force of good that exists in all human beings, eagerly but patiently waiting to grow and flourish if only given the right conditions. A good church is like rich, dark soil. The Bible, God's word, is like the sun. It illuminates and defines all that we see and nourishes our hungry souls when we open our leaves to catch its rays. And water, a cool drink on a hot day is like a good friend. The love of a parent or a sibling or a spouse or any person that brings life and refreshes your spirit. You still don't believe me? I think I'm just making this up. Still not convinced that Jesus' words are pointing to this very same spirit of truth and hope and forgiveness and redemption? This is the same Jesus that when sat across from a Samaritan woman drawing water from a well, the sworn enemy of his people, the Jewish people, and a woman who in that time and culture had no business talking to a man, let alone a rabbi. And she was an adulterous woman on top of that. This outcast, adulterous, Samaritan woman, and Jesus, the rabbi, the Messiah, the king of Jews, is not afraid to be seen with her. In fact, he insists that his coming kingdom is for her as well. And he encourages her to tell every single person she knows about their meeting. If the Christ himself is not ashamed of this scandal. Is there not still hope for you? This is the same Jesus who intervened in the stoning of a woman. Once again, an adulterer. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, he says. You remember. The angry mob is silent. One by one, they slowly drop their rocks and leave. And Jesus kneels down to the sorry sight of this terrified woman, and he asks, where are your accusers? They have all gone, my Lord, she replies. And what does Christ, the almighty king of kings, say? 
and no longer do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If the Son of God himself steps in to rescue one such as this, do you still see yourself as beyond his grace? One more, I promise. This same Jesus tells a parable, the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you've heard of it. A son demands his inheritance from his father, a horrendous offense, equivalent to saying, you are dead to me, give me what is mine. The father complies. The son takes his money and he spends it on all forms of pleasure and drink and debauchery. When the money runs dry, he finds himself destitute, eating out of the troughs with pigs. He thinks to himself, even being a slave in my father's house would be better than this. He sets off for home. The son isn't even truly repentant right now. He's merely coming home because he thinks he would be better off there. He's trying to cut his losses. He trudges home, rehearsing his sad, groveling speech that he's prepared to beg his way back into his father's house in as a slave. But then what happens? The second that the father sees his silhouette on the horizon, he runs, he sprints to his son, and he embraces him in a hug so tight the son can hardly speak. It's my son, the father cries. My son has come home. Somebody get him a robe, put a ring on his hand. He's back. And a feast fit for a king is held in his honor. And if Jesus tells this parable of the most unworthy, undeserving son receiving a king's welcome, then what does that say about the way that Christ sees you? But all that being said, I know there are some of you who still doubt. This world is too broken. I am too unworthy. And these stories about Jesus are all well and good, but they are not of the here and now. This kind of thing doesn't happen in the real world. If that's you tonight, here's a story. Uh, this is my father. Right here on the left, that's my brother. This is the only picture I could find of my dad. With You can see his face. This is my father, Daniel Jensen, bio daddy, you remember. I know I breezed through rather quickly the pictures of my family with all the siblings and the half-siblings and step-parents and all that. But you need to understand that that like, didn't just happen. Like All those pictures and the people there and the different roles and spaces they fill and the family dynamic can almost all be considered the result of the failings of one man, my father, Daniel Jensen. While married to my mother, he had a string of affairs that eventually culminated in his divorcing my mother before I was even two years old, leaving behind my older brother Jordan and my mother who was pregnant with my little sister Ellie. While I have no true memories of this divorce happening, I cannot pretend like it did not drastically affect the course of my life and the lives of my mother, my siblings, and many, many others. Dad remarried to my stepmother, Kenyatta, with whom he fathered four more children. My amazing siblings, Elijah, Isaiah, Danielle, and Amadis. The affairs, unfortunately, never stopped. And it wasn't long before Dad was divorcing Kenyatta. In the end, it seems that on the subject of lust and divorce, my own father is the expert the chief of all sinners. 
His wanton sexual conduct led not to the end of one, but two marriages that were at one time fruitful and happy. Behind him, a path of trauma and broken hearts and broken hope in all his children that they now have to manage. Even to this day, his name is spoken in hushed tones or with a mouthful of spite, and for good reason. And yet, for whatever reason, I have not ever been able to conjure any hate for the man. And believe me, I have tried. I've always felt like a bit of a black sheep in my family due to the lack of disgust in my father, where my siblings and my parents can easily rattle off about what a deadbeat he is. I've always fallen silent, unable to contradict the truth of their experience with my own. I could never fathom why God would spare me from the pain of my parents' divorce, something that my siblings definitely were not spared from. Surely it would be better if I was just like them, righteously angered at the injustice of my father's actions. It wasn't until a fateful day that my dad took me out to breakfast that I realized why I might have been spared the animosity I so coveted in my siblings. Dad and I ate our eggs and French toast that Saturday morning, laughing and joking, talking about movies and other nonsense without a care in the world. When we returned to the car, he didn't start the ignition but sat silently. He was visibly troubled. I'm sorry, he said. I'm sorry for not being around and for the things that I did. He choked through the words. That was all he said. He couldn't even look at me. As far as apologies go, it was far from exemplary. I realized immediately the position of power that I was in I had an opportunity to finally let loose the pain he had caused on my mother and my siblings and everyone else in my life who had trusted him and was hurt because of it. I could exact justice and I would be right to do so. But that day, I'm almost sorry to say, that is not what I did. Through no thought of my own, I found myself saying this, Dad, I forgave you a long time ago. In all honesty, everything you did and everything you're sorry for, I've never held against you. I love you. Even now, I am filled with guilt for not tearing him a new one for my siblings. But I know what Jesus asks of me. And perhaps through my words, this may have been the only time that my father didn't feel like scum that there might still be a place for him in God's family. In his parable, Jesus speaks of a father restoring his son, and there I found myself in the extraordinary position of a son who could restore his father. It is quite actually one of the only things about myself that I have ever been proud of. So if there is hope, and redemption to be found in this life 
even for a man like Daniel Jensen, the chief of all sinners, how can Jesus' grace not be for you as well? If you need further convincing, then look no further than the cross. Christ died that you might have a shot. That you might have a way to live free from the hold of lust and the pain of divorce. For God shows his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for me. He died for you. You are absolutely worth it to him. And if you feel unworthy, it's because you are. But also, this is so important. Make sure that you know this feeling, that feeling of being pulled out of water, breathing that long, satisfying breath of relief that you've been saved. You're safe now. You were blind, but now you can see. You were lame, but now you can walk. You were sick, but now you are healthy. You were trapped, but now you are free. You are free. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. God, we are unworthy. We are unworthy of your love and of your mercy. But thank God we don't have a say in the matter. It's something you chose to give. Free of charge. A second chance. It's not too late. It's never too late. Just let us live and breathe and walk in this truth. The freedom of knowing that we are seen and known by you. And that there is nothing that we have done and nothing that we could do to ever change how cherished we are by you. We are not worthy. Amen.